0: Well, we've kind of reached the end of 2 Corinthians, haven't we? We have been on this uh, journey for about a year, almost to the Sunday. Uh, and we start off with our, the, the principle of, of 2 Corinthians that we want to be transformed just into the image of God. Uh, uh, and we want to learn from God's Word how that we might be able to do that, how we might become uh, more sanctified in holiness. And, and we did it by going to a school on a very dysfunctional people and a very dysfunctional church, the church in Corinth. They just got a lot of things wrong. In that way, they're very common, uh, very similar to us in many, many ways. So we were able to go to school on them. But we're going to be wrapping this up uh, today with Paul's final challenge. But I wanted to kind of review a little bit about the atmosphere of Corinth in general. So I've borrowed uh, these thoughts uh, from a commentator. You might remember that uh, one uh, pastor in California said that you could call... You could rename 1st and 2nd Corinthians 1st and 2nd Californians uh, because the cultural aspects of both uh, California and the Corinthian church were very similar. Uh, This commentator says, Corinth's 80-year rise from the old ashes of classical Corinth was that of a first-century boomtown, overflowing with ex-slaves or freedmen, ex-Roman soldiers, and entrepreneurs of every ethnic stripe and background, including a substantial Jewish community. Corinth was a sports and entertainment culture. The good, the bad, and the ugly were there side by side, business, sports, tourism, sex, religious pluralism. Nevertheless, Paul and his cohorts had planted a remarkable church in Corinth, and all went well uh, until arrived those uh, whom Paul called super apostles. Men who preached a strange uh, uh, mixture of Christianity and Old Covenant strict, uh, strictures, scriptures and triumphant uh, theology that imported the values of the Corinth culture right into the church. So it's not just 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Californians, it can also be these days 1st and 2nd Carolinas as well because we see so many of the same things happen. You may recall that the structure of the book was First and sec- uh, the first uh, seven chapters really were deep in their theological import and we uh, really enjoyed some of the, the great depths of Scripture that we looked at. Then chapters 8 and 9 explained the implications for ministry and genuine Christian hope. And then uh, chapters 10 through 13, he was dealing with some of the Super apostles, these unrepentant false teachers who had usurped the apostles' authority. And he basically was saying, I'm coming to town and I'm bringing a stick. It's time to repent, repent before I get there because he is planning another trip here. So his, this, uh, he's kind of wrapping everything together here as he closes here with a closing challenge and a benediction. And just like the Apostle Paul, he's sort of the, the eternal optimist. He is born with the foolishness of the Corinthian church time and time again. And he still has hope that they are going to obey and that they are going to uh, heed his uh, doctrine And his authority. So even as an optimist here, he closes the letter with some encouraging challenges. So let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer. And let's be challenged by Paul's uh, encouraging challenges, his final challenges in the letter of 2 Corinthians. Lord, we look to you in faith. God, we thank you for our journey uh, through this letter and so many other letters that we have gone through. So many other books of the Bibles that we have gone through uh, uh, in the last 15 years as a church. And we thank you, God, for an approach that takes the word of God seriously, where we go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, so that over time we can understand the whole counsel of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless us this morning with your presence and with your power, with that indwelling of the Holy Spirit that applies that, uh, that word of God to our heart. Lord, some of us are fatigued, some of us are distracted, some of us are discouraged. But help us to wake up to the reality that our God reigns. And our God, though he cast the universe uh, from the words of his mouth uh, into the heavens, he also loves his children so much that he sent his only begotten son. That's a God worth paying attention to. So help us to be careful in our understanding and pay attention carefully to the words of God that come to us from 2 Corinthians this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You might be assisted uh, by looking in your uh, bulletin for the Home Group Helps. We have something of an outline there and some principles that might be uh, helpful for you to use in Home Group, uh, but also, of course, in family devotions uh, as well here. And you can see that this passage is, even though it's just a a few verses, it's going to be broken up into basically a challenge for triumphant living in verse 11, a challenge to true affection, verses 12 through 13, and a challenge with a Trinitarian benediction in verse 14. I draw our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. If you would like to follow along with me with your copy of God's word. God says, the apostle Paul writes, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Let's look here, first of all, the challenge for triumphant living here in uh, verse 11. And Paul just kind of gives uh, these, these quick little five points here, five commands here. But he starts off before that by saying, finally, brethren. Again, uh, he's using a, 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 a familiar term here. He's basically saying, you are my, we're all part of one family. Uh, you, the leaders of this church, you are my brothers in Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful principle there. If you adopt a child and that child comes into your home, if you have blood children, they are all brothers and sisters of that that adopted child. Well, all of us who are Christians have been adopted by the God of the universe. Our Father is God the Father. And because of that, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's interesting, Paul is careful not to go go and tell someone they're a Christian when they're not. Paul used this term brothers several other times uh, uh, in the context of 1 Corinthians. Those first two major sections of the letter that I've already mentioned, beginning in chapters 1 and chapter 8, he calls them brothers. But when he goes to rebuke the false teachers in chapter 10, he doesn't call them brothers. He doesn't call them brothers. He's assuming because they, of their stiff neck resistance to Paul's authority and their apostate-type uh, notions of theology that they're not brothers, but they are indeed in the church. As you don't call wolves sheep, you don't call false teachers uh, and spiritual usurpers Brothers. And this is important for us. You know, if you've been around long enough, you you may remember the big ecumenical movements of the 60s and 70s where all the churches were trying to come together again and make sure that they were united. Uh, Of course, being united is a a worthy thing. Uh, Christ prayed that we would be united. And yet, very often that unity came at a cost of truth. In so, so many ways. Ecumenicalism has really watered down the message in so many, many ways. I think uh, one of the problems that we have in our church today is a lot of churches are sitting down to tables that Jesus would overturn. And we just got to be able to look at God's standard and decide what does God's word teach? And we need to find a church that uh, would affirm uh, those, those great truths. So basically, one of the things he's now going to get into these just quick little uh, uh, challenges for triumphant living here, and every one of them, the uh, uh, the, the idea of rejoice, be made complete, be comfortable, be like-minded, live in peace, they're all in the present imperative. In other words, uh, they are a command. He is commanding you to do these things, but they're present tense, so it's something you need to do now, and you need to continue doing for the rest of your life. This isn't a, we just don't believe in a check-the-box Christianity, you know, we, we, the, the, the faith that we are building up here on Sunday needs to be able to last us all through the next week as well. So he starts off with, with one that is very difficult for some of us. Rejoice. Rejoice. That is to have joy. Uh, and uh, basically he's saying here that some of the joys that we can experience in heaven can actually be experienced in the church itself. The love, the joy, the the pleasure, the idea that we're going to heaven can actually be manifested in our own lives, even with all the sinfulness of ourselves and the sinfulness of this world. We can have joy here. But this idea of joy and rejoicing is a constant theme throughout Scripture. Paul loves telling people to rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, Rejoice always. That's all he says. (laughs) Rejoice always, right? Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice. And one of the great powers of becoming a Christian, especially a Christian that is growing in his sanctification, his continuing ho- holiness, is that, is that this actually is a possibility. And it's a possibility that can rise above your circumstances. I mean, we think about joy and we think about, you see pictures on the internet of people just partying it up and that kind of thing. And you think, well, you know, uh, you, you look, look at their life is so good and everything. But the thing about the Christian joy is it can go above. You can be joyful even the most difficult of circumstances. It is possible Paul wouldn't command us something that we, don't, we can't complete uh, within the, with the power of God uh, in obedience. Listen to what uh, Peter says. Uh, Peter was writing at a time during great persecution, uh, and the Christian churches were being arrested, people were being uh, martyred, and that kind of thing. First Peter uh, one three says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who were protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. In this you greatly rejoice and don't we we start thinking about heaven, the return of Christ, the, the eternal bliss, the fact that not only will we not suffer in heaven, we won't even be tempted to sin. And then, then Peter goes on to say, even now, for a little time, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So, greatly rejoice even through your trials. He goes on to say in chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. That is powerful. It's especially powerful if you understand the historical context. This fiery trial, some commentators say that at the time, Nero was capturing Christians, covering them with pitch, and using them as living lanterns in his garden. Literally a fiery trial. And yet, in the midst of that, in the midst of our relatives being taken away like that, our loved ones, our church being decimated by persecution, we are to rejoice. But the reason why is because our hope's not in this world, it's in the next. That's why Peter started off with talking about all the hope of heaven. What does that look like? What will it look like for every one of you who are a Christian one day? Well, go to Revelation 19. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sounds of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us, this is what they're saying to each other, they're singing to each other, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to God for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Wow. So we're going to be rejoicing for all eternity. Let's practice now. <laughs> That's kind of what Peter's saying, right? Yeah, our goal in sanctification ought to be, ought to be that, that we have the minimal transition from the way we act now and the way we will act for all eternity. That can only happen if you've got your eyes focused upon eternity and not upon the troubles and the difficulties. Now, I'm going to, kind of, I'm going to add to this point because we all struggle on this point, don't we? I mean, if we are honest with ourselves, there are a number of us that look at this command to rejoice and then we think, well, that's easy for them to say. Look what's happened in my life. Look at my, uh, uh, the griefs that I've gone through. Look at the difficulties. Look at my, uh, you know, what I'm going through at home. Look at my health issues and that kind of thing. And to be honest with you, in this fallen world, it is very difficult. This is really a very difficult command to obey for, for many, many of us. So I want to kind of go through, and I've actually listed these for you in your home group's help, so you can kind of tuck it in the back of your Bible that might help you through some of these things. But I want to go through kind of ten joy killers so we can kind of address these issues because so many of you are struggling right now to show this kind of joy. And then you know what happens when you don't show that kind of joy? What does it do? It depresses you, right? You think, well, I wish I could be joyful. I can't be joyful. And then you kind of go down into this slump. Why can't I be like everybody else, you know? So let me talk about these 10, uh, these 10 uh, uh, joy killers here. First of all, the number one is this, physical issues. What are some of the joy killers? And I want to start off with this because we need to recognize this is a truth. You know, I kind of joke sometimes that our church is the autoimmune disease headquarters for South Carolina, There's a lot of us who are struggling with autoimmune diseases. You go Google your autoimmune disease, and if it's not in number one, it's going to be in the top five of symptoms. And what are one of the symptoms of autoimmune diseases? Depression. Fatigue. Difficulty. You've got inflammation. The inflammation affects your mood as it does anything else. So we need to recognize this. Some people have a personality that just always seemed to be joyful. Others have have to really struggle with that. So in a sense, that's not your fault in a sense, but but if you just leave it there, it is your fault. Paul didn't just write to healthy people. You healthy people without autoimmune diseases, who've not struggled, who don't have a huge semester ahead of you, whose dog didn't just die, you rejoice. The others, you wallow in self-pity for a while. That's not what Paul said. Rejoice. Rejoice. That's what he says. So let's understand. There are some of us who struggle more with this issue. And and that, of course, is related to fatigue, too. You know, General Patton, my favorite quote of General Patton. Well, of course, there's a lot of quotes from General Patton I can't say from the pulpit. But one of them was this. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. And it's true, isn't it? Y'all, sometimes the most holy thing you could do is to take a nap. You're welcome. <laughs> because, uh, you know, you just need to kind of reset the physical button. So don't ignore the physical. All right, moving on from that sin. Sin is a joy killer. Again, for those of you who've got a few years under your belt, you kind of learn, you know, there's actually this reason that goes, should I sin? You know what? If I do, that's going to be pleasurable for a moment. Then it's going to be filled. I'm going to be filled with guilt and shame and remorse. I'm going to lose the moment. It'll become up again. I may alienate other people. And And you just kind of learn it ain't worth the trouble. It's just not worth the trouble. Sin will joy, take your joy from you because in a sense, whenever we sin, we quench the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to have joy. You know that wonderful passage in 2 Peter where he kind of lists these qualities that we should have. Faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And we look at that, that list and we realize we fail in them so often, but nevertheless, it's an expectation. That's what true obedient Christian life looks like. Peter kind of gives us some warning here. He says, If these qualities are yours are increasing, they, either, they neither uh, render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you practice those qualities of obedience, you're going to be fruitful and therefore joyful. For he who lacks these qualities is blind, short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Okay, so what happens when you don't walk in, a, in obedience, you let sin reign in your life, you sort of wallow down in this low-level mediocrity and you beat yourself up all the time. You have lose the joy. You lose the joy. Therefore, brethren, be the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as we practice these things, we will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance to the eternal kingdom of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Christians cannot lose their salvation. Salvation that can be lost is no salvation at all. You cannot lose your salvation, but you can certainly not enjoy your salvation. And it's kind of like I have done a lot of hiking in the past. I remember it was one time I was up there on uh, Whiteside Mountain one time and I'd gotten up there and it was foggy. It was foggy. And there was a path, but you could hardly see, you know, 15 feet in in front of your eyes. That's kind of way if you if you don't address the sin in your life, you're just going to be kind of going through the fog trying to make out the path. Peter says when we practice these things, faith, moral excellence, self-control, brotherly kindness, love, the fog dissipates and we see the path. We see the hope of heaven and we therefore have uh, the kind of uh, joy that we should have lost hope uh, Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. You know, we just lose our perspective. We get so down into this world and the struggles we're going with. We forget, uh, that with the life to come. Now, let me tell you, you know, let me shatter some of y'all's misconceptions right now. Your pastor's not perfect. I'm preaching to myself right now. I have, what is this? I have six pages, six pages, double-sided, no, 10 pages, double-sided, of verses that, re- that relate to hope. That relate to hope. And they, they're tucked in the back of my Bible. Because when I get down and I start getting into, tempted with self-pity. Or I get overwhelmed with life. Or, or frankly, y'all drive me crazy. I'll, uh, I'll pull this thing out. And I'll just start reading it. But I, don't, I hardly ever make it to page two. It's kind of a reset. Oh yeah, we're living for heaven. Oh Yeah. This is going away. Oh, yeah, I've been through this 6,000 times before, and God's gotten me through it every single time. Hope. If you lose hope, uh, it is a joy killer. Self-loathing. Now, here I've got to address another issue here. Uh, you know, it, it, I love the Puritans. You know I love the Puritans. But sometimes the Puritans' prayers, I just don't want to hear how much of a worm I am anymore. <laughs> oh, God, I am such a worm. not even worthy to, you know, to be bait. I don't know. And... It's true. I mean, compared to the Lord, we are worms, we are sinful people and that kind of thing. But there is an aspect where it's okay to love yourself. Now, I know I'm making some people nervous because it's going to sound like that whole self-esteem movement that has destroyed academia in our culture. You earned an F, but let's give you a B, because if we give you a B, you're going to learn to love yourself. Yeah. And you're going to be unemployable. Because you think everybody's just going to give you a B from now on. That's not what I'm talking about here. But bear with me here. Look at this. Psalm 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. made. Don't don't confuse humility with self-loathing. Self-loathing is a form of self-pity. I've actually heard people say, I can't come to God. I'm not good enough. Theologically, that is correct. But that's also a terrible excuse. And here's another, you've got to kind of piece these uh, parts together here. Uh, Jesus says in Mark 13, you are to love your neighbor as yourself, right? All right, what's the standard of loving your neighbor? The same kind of love you have for yourself. One reason why we have a lack of love in our culture is people hate themselves so much. And they're so used to self loathing, they end up loathing others. But Jesus says that there is a healthy kind of self love here. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. Wives, I use this, this verse in privately every wedding I've ever conducted. You know, husbands are to love their wives as themselves, as their own body. Again, the standard of measure for a husband's love towards his wife, and I guess a wife for his husband, is a certain level of self love. So, humility, of course, is a terrific virtue. But self loathing takes it way too far. And it ends up just killing your joy. Many of you who grew up over, under a heavy, uh, legalistic kind of background, you think everything's got to be performance oriented. That's really where so much of this burden comes from. L- let me tell you, God is performance oriented, but guess what? Jesus did all the performing. You're saved by grace. So stop beating yourself up unnecessarily. Self-pity is connected to that. Uh, when Jesus predicted his death, Peter said, God forbid. And what did Je- Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Because he didn't want to be tempted. He did not want to be tempted to go into self-pity. Now, Jesus, if anybody earned a little bit of self-pity, being separated from your father, being uh, going through a kangaroo court and found guilty when you were an innocent man who's never even sinned, and then crucified to death in a torturous way... And you knew that was coming, we think he'd earned a little bit of self-pity. But he didn't fall into that. And he didn't want Peter to tempt him in that. Future, worrying about the future, worry and anxiety. So many young people are on anxiety medications now. They've raised, if you go to this, uh, I watch uh, movies and, uh, not manga, what do you call Anime? I'm trying, y'all. I'm trying to like anime. But have any of y'all, uh, Baby Boomers, seen anime? Yeah, okay. So I'm trying to like anime. But so much every anime thing, everything is this dystopian environment. It always takes place after the destruction of mankind, and we're all poisoned because of plastic and all this kind of stuff. If I was twenty-two, I'd be depressed all the time too. This is what you're getting all the time. Well, guess up, this this world's gonna burn up anyway. And the plastic will probably assist that, right? You know, so so but they're so Anxious and they'll tell you, I'm full of anxiety and I'm on medication and this kind of thing. Matthew 16 says this, do this is a command, and this is Jesus. All right. I mean, not that do not worry, saying, What shall I eat? What shall I drink? With what shall I clothe myself or what shall I cover myself? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you isn 't that simple? All these things will be added to you, seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you i don 't have to i, I don 't even have to go th- too far on this illustration, but I stand before you as a man that is up in his years, and has never, ever, ever missed a meal. I know that shocks some of you. I've never missed a meal. God has taken care of us all the time. And yet, we go down this road, we get all worried, and he takes care of us again, and he takes care of us again. You know, the problem isn't our faith in God. It's our lust for comfort. It's our lust for security. It's our, it's our desire to keep up with the Joneses all the time. So stop being anxious. That's a joy killer. You don't look forward to the future. You don't look forward to anything. You think everything is just doom and gloom. So many young people today are are saying, I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have children because the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Right? Well, the world has been going to hell in a handbasket. I was born during the missiles of October, the closest we ever came to a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. All right. Past. I don't know where I was going with that. Romans 8, I love Romans 8. This was actually, uh, when you're in seminary, you have to take all these Greek and Hebrew courses. And the big one is the Greek 4. We kind of pull everything together. And your final exam is to take a passage and exegete it and write it out and everything. And this was mine, uh, Romans 8. I love this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have a past, you have a past. Even those who grew up in Christian homes have done some really stupid, sinful things. We had this reunion down in Columbia with my old church and my sister went with us. And She's got a great sense of humor. She actually has a good sense of humor. And, um, you know, and they kind of looked at her like, you know, what was was Alec like when he was growing up? And she said, oh, he was so holy. You know, they're like... Right, you know, it's a little... Sometimes I run into friends who knew me in my old life when I go back to Columbia. So I rarely go back, all right? We all have past. We all have things. There is no condemnation. And you know what I love about this? Remember, God lives in the eternal present. There's no future with God. There is no condemnation for the sins you commit tomorrow and 50 years from now. So... If God's willing to forgive and forget, we need to be willing to forget. But uh, uh, one in our home group the other day had mentioned. The devil's always getting you to think about the past. Or God's always pointing you to the future. There's a misplaced view of God's blessings. Romans 8, 28 says, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his persons. That That ought to be a verse you memorize, right? What we do. As Christians, we trust God's management, even in the bad things, even when he brings us grief and pain and suffering and financial woes and everything else. We trust it now. We trust it in the future. We trust God's management because it comes from a God who loves us. When we get all uptight and we start blaming God and we get all bent out of shape, we lose our joy. The joyful person rests in God. You know, we're so often trying to pray, God, don't make me suffer this. Don't make me go through this difficulty. I pray, God, use that difficulty to grow me up. And if you've been tried, if you've been crushed, which many of you have, th- there's a settled peace that comes, isn't it? That I, hey, I've been through that before. We can handle this. This isn't nearly as bad as the difficulty that I've been through before. I love what Oswald Chambers says here. Are you so identified with the Lord's life that you are simply a child of God, continually talking to Him and realizing that all things come from His hands? All things come from His hands. Bitterness, Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many are defiled. Let me tell you, this is... If this church ever implodes like so many churches do, it will be partly because of bitterness. In my counseling situations, 90% of the difficult counseling situations I deal with, there's a root of bitterness in some wife or, or husband or both of them. And it can be bitterness towards people. It can be bitterness towards God. This is the reason for atheism. You know why atheists don't believe in God? Because they hate him. For something that happened in the past or some uh, dream that didn't come through. We simply cannot afford bitterness. There is no place for bitterness. You've got to forgive. You've got to move on. Even when people don't want forgiveness. For your sake, bitterness is a cancer. It can destroy families. You can probably think of examples of this. But I'm telling you, generally, when I'm asking people in a counseling situation, I'm trying to get to where's the bitterness coming from because it's there. It's there. And then, of course, discontentment, which kind of covers all these things. You will not have joy if you're a discontented person. Jeremiah Burroughs, the great uh, Puritan commentator, says, the discontented man does not enjoy what he has. Get old American Ben Franklin said it better. The discontented man finds no easy chair. Uh, If you have a spirit of discontentment, you don't enjoy anything. Or maybe just pleasurable indulgences every now and then. And it's rampant. The whole system of marketing out there is to create discontentment. I love my car. And then that guy gets on the radio. Your old car, you need to get rid of it. Boy, I hate my car. You know, it just doesn't take very long, does it? We are, and and no one's ever had it better than this generation. And we're just live with discontentment. You get rid of discontentment by getting rid of expectations. You reduce things. Because we get all bent out of shape that God hadn't fulfilled our dreams. Well, he didn't give you those dreams. And there's not a whole lot of Jesus in those dreams. Because you don't have a condo in Bimini does not mean God hates you. And and, and one of the beautiful things about this power of discontentment, of of contentment, it not only will give you joy, but it gives you faith. Because it's one of these... creative aspects that God gives people who are made in His image. With discontentment, we can, we can, in a sense, with our attitude, create light out of darkness. We've got a dark life. We've got difficulties. We're suffering physically. We're suffering with grief. We're suffering with overwhelming stuff that's going on in our culture. We're having a hard time with money. And yet, in all that darkness, you can bring light out and you can rise above that light. It's remain, but if you've been around people who've really suffered and have gotten through it, they're a pleasure to be around. They're just full of joy. They're just full of joy because they've learned that. All right, so I, I I've kind of gave you those tips. That is a little bit of a rabbit trail. It's the first rabbit trail I've ever had. Uh, b- but this really matters, folks, because when I sometimes when I hear these commands to rejoice, I just realize how much I fail, and We need to know why we fail. We need to go to school on that sin. We want to be rejoicing people. Matter of fact, it's interesting. This word uh, sometimes rejoices translated, for instance, in the King James and the NIV as farewell or goodbye. And it's because the idea is kind of like shalom. Shalom means peace, but it's also a greeting, right? Uh, it's the same kind of thing, is that what we want is joy, 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 joy. So that became so prominent in the culture that it's, uh, that it's something we wish upon people. It really would be something for us to, to do in this church, wouldn't it? Anybody ever been to England? You go out of a shop and you say, thank you so much, and they go, cheers, cheers. I mean, even if, you know, even if they are a miserable person, they're going to say, cheers. That's a great thing to say. It's the same thought here. Greeting, saying goodbye, cheers. Rejoice, always, all of us. But boy, we need help. (laughs) Can you help me be able to rejoice here? Then we are to be made complete. We talked about this last week. That idea is is really uh, putting things in order or adjusting things or even mending fishermen's nets here. And he's probably referring to the need of the Corinthians to restore their unity, uh, their relationship with both each other and with Jesus Christ here. Uh, And he's also kind of commanding them to, to fix these theological errors, this sin this, uh, these factions that are going on there in the Corinthian church. A great summary of how we're supposed to behave as a church, as an individual, is in Ephesians 4. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which when you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's a great example of that in Shakespeare with, uh, with Henry. Uh, uh, Henry, before he became he was prince, but he wasn't named prince. His father hadn't passed away yet. He would just hang out in bar, uh, uh, bordellos and bars, and his best friend was Falstaff. And then he, then he became king, and he didn't hang out with Falstaff anymore. He didn't go out. The, he, he was adopted. Well, he wasn't adopted, but he was made an heir of the kingdom, folks. It's not for us to wallow around in the mud. We're to walk worthy in the manner with which we've been called. With which we've been called. That's how we would be made complete. Then we're to be comforted. Again, this is a command. Uh, we're to receive the comfort that is given to us by God. Notice this, this, you are to be comforted. You are to receive that comfort. God gives you the comfort. It's just sometimes we reject it. We'd rather, we'd rather just focus on all the things that are going wrong instead of the things uh, that are going right here. But we're also supposed to comfort one another. We need each other's help. We need unity. We need community. It's difficult. Life's difficult. You need, you need friends. We are a brother's keeper. We are to be like-minded. That is to agree with one another, think the same things, have the same convictions, uh, and, uh, and that kind of thing. Now, it's the, it, this is not a, a shallow, superficial truce. This is, we are really united in our thoughts about God, and about church, and about each other. Uh, You know, again, uh, we're a church that that, that, kind of is filled with refugees from other churches in many ways. I mean, we've got got people that are members of the church that are former Baptists, former Methodists, former Episcopalians, former Pentecostals, former uh, megachurch evangelicals, probably just about every denomination. So, but when you come to this church, you need to be like minded. And one of the ways we do this, one of the ways we we, we try to encourage this, is we stick with scriptures. All right, what do the scriptures say? The scriptures that are in your lap, the scriptures that we sang, the scriptures that you're hearing right now. Let's go to that and let's decide on that. What do we think? And then, of course, we're blessed with this amazing tradition of the Westminster Confession of Faith, probably the richest theological uh, uh, position paper that's ever been written in Western civilization. It's deep, and it's every one of those points, like uh, Elder Cox pointed out earlier, it's got a Bible verse. So our focus is on what does God say? Now, there's some differences, right? We can understand that. We, we, we don't, we, if it's, a, it's not an issue of fellowship, we have fellowship. But there's so, pe- people are so consumed here uh, to be to, united again, kind of going back to that previous point, that they're not like-minded Paul, Paul taught that like-mindedness comes from a common understanding of Scripture. We see this in Romans 15. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for your, our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It really is possible. It really is possible. But it's not if everything we do is based on the opinions of men. We, and then we're to live in peace. That comes with submission to God's word... Uh, but it requires effort. This idea that live in peace, Hebrews 12 says we are to pursue peace. The idea uh, with pursue is to put to flight, pursue, or by implications, it means to persecute. So we have to work towards having peace. So we're to be uh, uh, like-minded and uh, seeking to make sure that other people... uh, are also uh, in fellowship with us whenever we possibly can, and then what's the, here's a promise here. And the God of love and peace will be with you. So God is the source of both love and peace, and and, and as, as opposed, you know, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you follow these principles here, the God of peace is going to be with you. And the this is the result of the doing these kind of things. He is going to be with you. Listen, you got God with you. You got a majority. You remember that situation where Elijah was challenging the prophets of Baal? And I think it ended up being, if you do the math, I think it ended up being 800 false prophets that were going against them. And here's Elijah out there. But Elijah had God on his side. You almost feel sorry for those false prophets. 800 to 1, and they are completely outnumbered because God's on their side. So even if no one else is with you, God is with you. Then we see a challenge to true affection here. This is the verse that's probably made some of you nervous when I first read it. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Right? We're not going to have the Newell boys demonstrate this. No. Uh. Greet each other with a holy kiss. All right, let me explain what that means. Right? It's, it doesn't mean probably some of the things you mean. But it's interesting. This idea of greeting each other with a kiss was not part of the Greco-Roman world. It was not part of the community at Qumran, the, the Jewish community bunker folks that lived uh, off the of the of the uh near the dead sea this was kind of a unique thing it was something that the church brought in because what you had here is you had a new type of standard of love a new kind of living together but you also had slaves and very wealthy landowners and this was something they would do they would when they would greet one another they would kiss each other not on the lips not erotic probably just a, a peck on the cheek when well, we do this right sometimes but it's showing that filial affection. It's showing you are my brothers, you are my sisters. This is the kind of thing you do within families. And it's powerful. And Paul is he's kind of commanding this. Don't forget the holy kiss. Don't forget the community. It's hard to hate someone you're kissing. Right? It's just beautiful. Now, we, don't, we have holy hugs, right? I don't think I ever hugged a man until I became a Christian. And then you do it so often after that, you kind of forget that's a strange thing. We had friends from England that came here and, you know, all these Americans are hugging the English and they're just like, oh, you know, and they they don't know what to do because that's not, they don't do that. They're not known for their affection in England or the high quality of their food. Uh, (laughs) But, but, but they came here and they were just overwhelmed with people hugging on each other all the time. And, and it really, it really impressed them. Wow. You're letting down your, your your defenses to the point you're actually embracing one another. I have this remarkably fashionable robe that I wear I have to have it dry cleaned every few months because I get makeup smears right here. Just just women hugging the pastor. It's a little bit of a challenge cuz not all people are huggers. You know, this is the, I'm looking at one of them right now. But you, know, you kind of go you kind of you, know, you know but it's a holy thing to do. We ought to be huggy people. I don't, rec- you know, holy kiss, you know, don't take it. You, you could kiss people, but you don't need to kiss people. His point is you show affection to one another. Because your heart ought to change with your doctrine ought to magnify your affections. You really are part of the same family. It certainly means, no, means that you need to go and know their names, right? One of the reasons why we have home groups, it gives us an opportunity to hug each other and to enjoy really good casseroles from time to time. So this practice wasn't known, but he's kind of introducing it uh, here. Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, says this, we are not as we know, but as we love, as we love. If you really are a Christian, that means God loves you and you love God. How are you going to prove that? Well, you can't hug God, but you can certainly uh, love other people. And he says here, all the saints greet you. He's kind of bringing in the community. He's reminding the Corinthians, you are part of the wider world of Christianity. And they all greet you. And if they were here, they'd give you a kiss too, but they can't. But he's writing probably from Ephesus and he's saying here, we, uh, you know, we want to greet you here. Uh, uh, everybody, everybody's anxious to know how you're doing and we want you to know uh, how they are doing as well. Again, all these are in a present imperative. So these are commandments that we are to do. So let me just kind of give you this because some of you may be struggling with this whole thing because life is difficult. But you need to have confidence that God is managing life for you, even through the difficulties and the trial. You know, you remember that scene, and, and we've preached this this uh, through this before. It's in Mark six, where Jesus commands the disciples to go out on the water, and they obey him, and then this terrible storm comes up, and they think they're going to die, and then Jesus shows up walking on the water. And then all of a sudden, you know, Peter goes out, they come back, he restores them, and then they're immediately on shore. That is an amazing scene. And we think about it mostly as Jesus can control creation. That's a good way to think about it. But what if you were in that boat? How many times have you gotten in that boat and said, Why did God get me to go do this? We're about to die. He sent us out into this storm. Because He knows He's coming to you on the water and He's going to send you to the other side at some point in time. We're so consumed with the result that we completely ignore the process. God is just the opposite. He is just the opposite. Again from Chambers, listen to this. We have an idea that God is leading us to a particular end, a desired goal. He is not. The question of getting into a particular end is a mere incident. Uh, What we call the process, God calls the end. It is the process, not the end, which is glorifying to God. What men call training and preparation, God calls the end. God's end is to enable me to see that He can walk in the chaos of my life just now. If we realize that obedience is the end, then each moment... As it comes is precious. We just, y'all, quit thinking about your retirement at the expense of enjoying this afternoon. Then we see finally a challenge and a trinitarian benediction here uh, in, in verse fourteen. And I've been closing uh, this series with this benediction uh, since last August. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. That is a pronouncement of blessing upon a Christian. In our tradition, in the Social Reform Presbyterian Church, you actually have to be an ordained pastor to, to declare a benediction. That's how important they are to us. The idea of benediction comes from the Latin word benedictus, which means uh, blessings. And what's so special about this particular one is it's so Trinitarian. It's doctrinally rich, but it's in a different reverse order here, which is kind of interesting. But again, it, you know, if you want to help understand what the Trinity means, that you've got one God and three different persons a basic syllogism might be this that would help you. The Bible teaches there is only one God, yet it calls three persons God. Therefore, the three persons are one God. Things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. So if the Bible calls God the Spirit, uh, uh, it, says, it talks about the Spirit of Christ and the Father having a Spirit, then the Spirit is one God, right? And they're equal to God the Father, God the Lord Jesus Christ, So he kind of goes through this, but he starts off with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why do you suppose normally we would start off with father, son, spirit, right? Why do you suppose he starts off with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there ever a church that needed grace more than the Corinthian church? And he's basically saying, you know what? You're going to do this by the grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. If we were to ever rename this church, one of the top contenders ought to be Grace Presbyterian Church. Because grace, there's no better one word summary of Christianity than grace. Grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Going back to uh, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 8, 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor for your sake, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And then he talks about the love of God. Of course, Jesus provides grace. God, the Father, provides Jesus. Right? That's the way it works. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5, eight. but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. Romans 8, 38 through 39. It's amazing how I bet once a month that verse comes into the sermon somehow because it's such a verse of hope. Romans eight thirty eight through 39. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now what I really want to emphasize here, because a lot of you are bru- bruised reeds, is this the love of God? If you grew up without a father, if you grew up with an abusive father, you grew up with an absentee father, you've grew up with a disappointing father. But frankly, all fathers to a certain degree are going to be disappointing, right? We're, we're human. But people struggle with this idea of God, the father, because of their own father. It's the love of God. I think one of the reasons for, for the veneration of Mary is because in the Middle Ages, they thought of God as just being this big old ogre who's just waiting to be disappointed in you. So we had a, you like the big grumpy dad. So we had to have the sweet, complacent wife that you go to first to get permission to do things. You wanted a mama. To, so you go to the mama to get the father to do stuff. There's a lot of bad things about the veneration of Mary, but I think that's one of them. I think it distracts from the love of God. It's the love of God. Folks, if you're a Christian, he is not sitting down and thinking, I am so disappointed in them. When are they going to get their act together? Like, 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 like there's some mystery here with God in your performance, right? He knows what you're going to do 40 years from now. That's not what he is saying. You know what he's saying? You know what God is doing for the Christian love of God? You know what he's doing? God, the father, Zephaniah 317. The Lord, our God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be he will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. With loud singing. I've got a fat little grandbaby right now. And every time I look at those pictures, I just start smiling. I just, and, and of course, he is the most handsome child on planet. But I just, I mean, just think, I just love that little baby. And he really, frankly, hasn't been a real great performer so far. I mean, he just, there's not a whole lot he can do right now. I just love him. If I was a singer, I would sing over him. That is what God is doing. God, the Father, is doing for you. He is singing over you. He doesn't sit there and just just wallow in disappointment because of your performance. Jesus performed for you. He can't wait for you to get to heaven and be with him. Enjoy that, folks. This is not just theologically rich, it is emotionally rich. We need to hear that. And then of course the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is the fulfillment of the new covenant. What a the Holy Spirit is sort of the he doesn't want as much attention and he's sort of, but he's sometimes neglected or, or overemphasized to the point of kind of fanaticism. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Christians love the law. They love obedience because they love God. They love God. And they live in his household. And, that, and we can do that because the Holy Spirit resides within us. And then, of course, he, he kind of closes this with this idea of be with you all. This is not just some theological concept. This is a relational thing that he is placing upon you, a blessing. He's saying that God will be with you all. Remember, who's he talking to? The Corinthians. they would never been a more messed up church than Corinthians. And yet God is going to be with them all. All who are true Christians. As we focus on this, think about the words of this hymn. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. It reaches to the lowest hell. The wandering child is reconciled by God's beloved son. The aching soul again made whole and priceless pardon won. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure The Saints and Angels song. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, that we can agree with not only the theology of the angels, but also the relationship and joy of the angels. As we sing praises to God, as we think about a God who loves us, even though we ourselves are so disappointed in ourselves. We thank you, God, for the grace that comes through Lord Jesus Christ and how that grace is applied to us through the Holy Spirit. And we thank you because of that we can rejoice, we can be united, we can have hope. So I pray, God, that we would see the evidence of the changed lives this week as we step out in faith and obedience of these wonderful challenges that close out this amazing book of 2 Corinthians. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs> to stand and sing about this love of God. The love of God is greater. Uh, still, please uh, notice, I think this is an insert in your bulletin. the benediction the good word of the Lord Jesus Christ that comes to us from the end of second Corinthians the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all amen